Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Econ Americas podcast, where we share under the radar investment opportunities across the Americas from countries up in Canada down to Chile. Make sure to subscribe to our uh, YouTube channel and find us on all the major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Cast, and whatever you get your own feeds. So in case you're a first-time listener of this show, Econ Americas is a startup research firm that provides financial and economic intelligence. You can learn more about us and our services at econamericas.com. And you can also follow us on all the major social media platforms. I am Daniel Duarte, editor at Econ Americas, hailing from Asuncion, Paraguay. And in this episode, we'll be discussing investment opportunities in Mexico. And today I'm joined by a, a very special guest. His name is Rafael Ramirez de Alba. Rafael is a professor of economics at IPADE Business School in Mexico City. He received MBA from Columbia Business School in New York City and has extensive experience in the financial services industry, having worked for the Central Bank of Mexico, Goldman Sachs, and GE Capital. He has also experience working in the private sectors as a consultant on financial and technological issues and as a member of the board of directors of several companies, including tech startups. Rafael, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Very, very happy to, uh, to be with you and your audience. Uh, and especially very grateful for the opportunity to talk about Mexico and the plentiful uh, investments opportunities that are uh, in the country. Thank you for the invitation. And Rafael, to kick off our conversation, uh, we would like to give our listeners and viewers a brief overview of Mexico's economy today, because uh, many uh, might know that Mexico has been a destination for manufacturing companies uh, since the NAFTA agreement. But has that, has that trend consolidated or changed in any way, or have other sectors emerged to compete for foreign investment since? Well, definitely, uh, the signing of the of the North American Free Trade Agreement uh, some decades ago was was really a, an event that changed the Mexican economy for good in in many many ways. And you're absolutely right that has it since since the signing of, of the of the agreement, uh, a lot of manufacturing companies set up set up operations in Mexico, particularly in the auto industry. So even today, around 22% of our exports are vehicles or auto related, but at the same time, other industries have also developed. There's been a, a very big increase in terms of, of electric components and electronics in general, industrial machinery as well. And also uh, the agricultural sector has, um, has seen a, a sort of renaissance, mainly in the production of high value um, uh, stocks and and fruits and vegetables that are appreciated in the US uh, so the, the, there's a big uh, industry developing and has has developed a lot to export fruits and vegetables to the US so that that that's also has been greatly expanded by by NAFTA and at the same time I think one of the one of the most interesting developments in the last few years has been the development of some clusters around uh, advanced uh, industrial processes and around digital digital products uh, there are plenty of companies in in Jalisco state that are you know startups in the digital space that are doing very interesting things and have, have a very bright future i think and we 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 should also talk about the aerospace cluster that has developed around the Querétaro area 
which is also uh, uh, you know a, a very up and coming uh, important industry in Mexico. Right. Yes, that's a wide array of, of new industries indeed. And even though Mexico is among the largest recipients of foreign direct investment in all Latin America, if not the largest, um, why do still many Mexican startups, entrepreneurs um, flock to Silicon Valley or the New York Stock Exchange or even Toronto to raise capital? What is missing, not just in Mexico, but in, in the region to, to develop capital markets? Well, I think that's a, that, that's a great question. I think that, first of all, we, we're very close to the U.S. So it's, it's very natural for us to sort of go there and, and try to raise capital via private investments or the public market. So it's, it's very, very, very natural. And uh, in general, in Mexico, most of the financing really has come from the banking sector via traditional loans. Uh, as you know, our stock market is, is relatively small, relatively small. In terms of number of companies and in terms of their market cap uh, represented in the stock market, and, and it's very and it's very hard for, for for companies to to raise capital in the in the stock market. It's much easier for people to raise you know loans from from banks in the in the traditional way. And in terms of uh, of financing of new ventures, I think that the main obstacle is that there aren't a lot of big pools of capital that are domestic, that are, you know, dedicated to funding those types of initiatives. Most people who want to raise capital for a new venture, for something related to, uh, to a new company, especially in the tech space, uh, really has to go um, look abroad for most of the investment, especially after the initial rounds where you get mo most of your money from friends and family. When you, you really get into the institutional space, then the big pockets of money and expertise as well are, are in the U.S., which doesn't mean that uh, Mexico does have a, an interesting and, and growing uh, venture capital industry and private equity in general, uh, mainly being funded via foreigners, but with funds that are set up in Mexico and also from a number of family offices that have seen private equity and, and venturing as, as interesting avenues to diversify the, their, their holdings and, and really get into that, into that space. So, so yes, it's, it's relatively small, but I think it's growing and, and, and I think it's going to continue growing in the next few years, especially if we can manage to uh, achieve some level of macroeconomic stability that uh, makes people you know, more willing to spend their money and invest in, in Mexico, which is at, at, at this time still some of a question mark. Interesting. And we have seen in some countries in Latin America a drive to um, expand retail investor access to capital markets in, in general. For instance, in Brazil, there has been a, a large push to get retail investors really um, regular uh, workers access to investing in the stock market and in Colombia with uh, digital banks and has this trend. And of course, in the US, uh, as you may have heard, the, the investment in the stock market and all sorts of securities in this year has exploded. And as people have more time to you know, be online and, and check out um, many different things in this year uh, of the pandemic. So have we seen this same trend in Mexico or, or not yet? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There are a number of players who are trying to get into the space. 
I would venture that you know many many traditional brokerage firms are are, are starting experimenting with providing tools to uh, small investors so that they, they they can tap different sorts of investments and, and really invest in the capital markets. And also, you see a lot of emphasis coming from um, big international players like BlackRock, for example, uh, trying to sell their funds in Mexico, making a big push in trying to reach the individual investor and providing them with tools and alternatives to, to invest their money. Uh, so I, 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 I'm seeing that as well. It's still relatively small, so there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, but especially focusing on sort of not the big fortunes of or, or people who have a lot of money to invest but really people who have sort of sort of relatively small amounts personally uh, but that they want to invest and trying to find better returns than what they can get in a bank that's something that um, that's still a big opportunity in in the future there's also a number of, of interesting things going on like for example crowdfunding platforms that have been very very successful and it, it also it, it's all driven by the search for for yield right i mean if you are a small investor in mexico as in many other countries around the world and you keep your money in the bank you're going to get at most you know 0.5 percent interest and really nothing. So uh, being able to invest your money uh, via these platforms in an intelligent way uh, where uh, you don't run excessive risks, I think it's very interesting. Another opportunity that I would like to point out is that there are a number of, of platforms that are trying to do this in the, in, in the real estate space. A very interesting experiment going on these days. Uh, I'm, I'm following that quite closely, but uh, there are companies like uh, Cien Ladrillos, 100 Bricks, that are that are trying to do precisely that, uh, allowing small investors to participate in the financing of real estate, and 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 they are having good results. I'm I'm very positive about the, the prospects for that. A decade ago, Puerto Rico set out to become a tax haven to lure individuals and companies from both the U.S. mainland and abroad. However, a combination of natural disasters, government mismanagement, and unsustainable debt led to the U.S. Commonwealth's bankruptcy in 2016. To remain attractive to foreign capital and entrepreneurs, Puerto Rico decided to double down on tax incentives with a new law. The Tax Incentive Code, or Act 60, seeks to make the island an international hub for service providers. It encourages investors and companies to relocate to Puerto Rico and connect with clients outside the island. However, some industries are eligible. Advertising, education, graphic design, call centers, consultancy, trading companies, health services, legal services, taxes and accounting, construction, engineering, architecture and data processing. The fiscal benefits for new business in these export sectors are a flat 4% corporate tax rate on net income from sources outside Puerto Rico for 15 years, renewable for 15 more years, no taxes on the distribution of dividends, a 50% exemption on municipal taxes, and a 75% exemption on property taxes. There are also benefits for individuals. Act 60 includes a special regime for investors willing to relocate to Puerto Rico. 
they are fully exempt on all passive incomes such as dividends and interests. Interest and dividends that qualify as Puerto Rico sourced income are subject to exemptions from the U.S. federal income tax. To benefit from these incentives, investors must prove they effectively reside in Puerto Rico and do not maintain closer ties to other jurisdictions. They can also benefit from property taxes exemptions if they buy a home in the first two years of moving to Puerto Rico. Business owners who choose not to move to Puerto Rico along with their business can still get attractive deals. Companies whose main business owner does not reside in Puerto Rico must pay 4% corporate tax rate and an additional 6-period 5% rate to the U.S. federal government. In total, 10-period 5% versus the 21% if operating from the U.S. mainland. If you want to learn more about tax incentives in Puerto Rico, make sure to check out our show notes where we have included a link to a backgrounder on the topic by Econ Americas. Great. And as, as you said, the search for yields uh, is a phenomenon that's going across the world in the developing countries. Interest rates are now very low, even negative in real uh, terms. So investors are, are searching for opportunities in the emerging markets. And what would you uh, recommend or what areas, industry sectors are the ones uh, on your radar for these kinds of investment? Well, some of the some of the ones that we already discussed at the beginning of the conversation, I think that anything that has to do with uh, low cost production in Mexico to sell to the U.S. has a lot of potential. So anything that's related to the auto industry, because it's not only you know the assembly of cars, but all the things that that, that go into that. So a lot of uh, suppliers of that industry have tremendous opportunities to to expand their businesses. So that'll be number one. Number two, explore opportunities in, in, in the farming space, in the agricultural space. Again, uh, trying to export to the U.S. And, and really linking supply chains between Mexico and the U.S. I think it's also an interesting opportunity. There's also, if you look at the, uh, at the local market, the domestic market, we are still a country that you might describe as a, as a middle-income country. So there's still a lot of things that need to be built. So anything related to construction, I think uh, it's going to experience a renaissance in the next uh, following years. Of course, now we're living through a period, period of transition with the COVID pandemic and, and, and you know, the changes that that has brought. Uh, a lot of, of office space stands empty, especially in big cities in Mexico City, Guadalajara and Monterrey. Uh, a lot of uh, retailers are rethinking their strategies. But uh, the reality is still that, um, that there's a lot of need for property, for property development, uh, both commercial and residential. So that that's also an industry that I think is going to experience a, a lot of growth in the future. And, and, and finally, uh, going back to the digital transformation theme, uh, there's a lot of very good talent in Mexico, developers and programmers that can be tapped 
and and really allow them to serve a, a worldwide market. It's not only the U.S., but it's anywhere around the world. So investing in high tech companies that uh, program and develop in Mexico, uh, I think, is also a very interesting opportunity. Exactly. Well, this pandemic, if it has shown uh, anything, is that remote work can work great in in many cases, and barriers to you know labor is just not. Uh, nowadays, not just a big barrier in in, in borders is basically uh, <laughs> the the digital barriers are falling down. So that's an area uh, everyone is is focusing on. Now, I would like to touch on two developments that I think are interesting. Uh, in one case, um, the Mexican billionaire Ricardo Salinas uh, made an announcement these days that his bank Banco Azteca was going to uh, the business in Bitcoin. But the central bank of Mexico was quick to uh, clarify and, and basically say, no, uh, Bitcoin transactions are, more or less, he said, Bitcoin transactions were illegal in Mexico. So do you think this uh, situation will stand? I mean, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies um, having a hard time entering the Mexican market? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Let me put it this way. I don't think Banco de Mexico really said uh, it's people are not allowed to buy or sell Bitcoin or that Bitcoin in some shape or form is forbidden. What they said is that, and, and I think they are absolutely right about that, is that it's, it's still a very volatile uh, investment. It's not for everyone. People should be, should be aware of that. I think that now that valuations have come down dramatically from the highs of you know, $60,000 per Bitcoin now to close to $30,000, $35,000, a lot of air has come out of that of that balloon. So uh, I think people are, are are being more thoughtful about you know what can happen with cryptocurrencies. They can go up very quickly, but they can also go down. So I think Banco de Mexico is is, is acting prudently in saying you know people be be, be careful about this, uh, be conscious of what you're doing, and it, it is also true that uh, financial institutions still have a lot of regulations and 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 things that they can't do in terms of providing access to buying and selling of Bitcoin. But it's it's not forbidden in, in, in any way, shape or form. In, in fact, you have, uh, you know, a, a relatively young startup called Bitso that's, that's set up in Mexico. It's a perfectly legal operation and they buy and sell uh, cryptocurrencies and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. So, uh, and, and also, I, I would also point out the fact that Mexico is one of the few countries, I think, around the world that has a relatively advanced fintech law that was passed a couple of years ago in which uh, cryptocurrencies are considered. And, uh, and authorities realize that there are a lot of ways in which not only cryptocurrencies, but the blockchain technology can, can be beneficial. And they've set up, you know, a safe, safe, safe space for for people to experiment, uh, you know, doing it through legal means and setting up their companies and being a fintech. But I don't think I don't think Banco Medico or any other authority, financial authority in Mexico is, is really sending the message, you know, this is forbidden. Don't do this, but just be careful about it. Follow the rules and, and make sure you don't put other people's money in danger in the process. 
Yeah, I think it also comes on the heels of El Salvador's uh, project. So caution is is the sentiment here that uh, the central bank is trying to get across. So, and of course, remittances in Latin America is a huge market that cryptocurrencies are serving, as you mentioned, Bitso and, and others are really um, making a lot of headwinds into that sector. And the other development I wanted to discuss was the Supreme Court's recent ruling to legalize recreational uh, marijuana or cannabis. But um, previously, there were some laws legalizing it and some states it was it is already legal. So it's a bit confusing the the legal uh, situation of of cannabis in Mexico. Do you see investment in this industry uh, anytime soon, the likes of uh, the United States or Canada, or are there still regulatory hurdles, and not to mention the issue of uh, cartels um, uh, being you know, threatened by the legal market? Yeah, I, I, I honestly think we are still some time away from from really finding opportunities in, in, in that industry in, in Mexico, I, I think the, the regulatory framework is not as solid as it should be. And um, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm personally in, in favor of it. I, I've always pushed for uh, for the legal use of, of substances like this. I, th- I think prohibition is, is the worst thing we can do about it. But still, I don't think the legal framework and the regulatory framework, it has been established with the sufficient degree of of confidence that would allow major investments in this space in Mexico at this time. Now, could this change in the future? It probably will. But uh, but I think there are a lot of you know important initiatives and and and, and pieces of legislation in the agenda that that are going to take precedence before really considering making a big push to make this type of investments uh, more more solid on a, from a legal point of view, from a regulatory point of view. Right, exactly. And we covered, for instance, the medical uh, marijuana industry in Colombia. And even though they have a very advanced legal framework, there are still many issues for exporting uh, the raw flowers, for instance, in Colombia, that is still not allowed. And that has uh, limited the, their markets and really the, the growth of the industry. So um, there's still, I mean, the, the, the medical and the legal a recreational market is still very, very uh, incipient in the region. And speaking about the pandemic, um, in a recent interview, the chief of the Bank of International Settlements said something along the lines that emerging markets will take longer to recover than developed uh, markets because of vaccination and, and economies being more affected than, than the rest of the world. And as the Federal Reserve and other central banks uh, start raising rates, uh, that will presumably drain capital from emerging markets. And how can the region and maybe Mexico prepare for that coming uh, economic um, environment? Well, let me start by saying that Personally, I, I don't think that the, the Fed is going to raise rates anytime soon, <laughs> or they're going to uh, really have a, a more hawkish uh, monetary policy in the next few months or years. So I, th- I think that, that, that that's still some, some, some you know, years away some years away. Uh, but still, your point is very valid. I think you know, the, the main challenge that we have in Mexico is really strengthening 
the uh, the rule of law in general and the uh, predictability of decisions taken by the federal government. I think that has some that's something that hasn't helped in the past few years. The situation is not as bad as some people might present it. Uh, uh, there are positive aspects to the to the current administration that um, that make me optimist. For example, I think that one of the main drags to growth in the next few years for a lot of Latin American emerging countries has been the level the level of, level of debt that they have incurred. And uh, we haven't done that in Mexico. Um, public finances are relatively stable. Debt to GDP levels are below 50%, which is pretty reasonable. So uh, if we can manage to provide a more uh, welcoming uh, environment for investment in general, especially foreign investment, but also domestic investment, and keep uh, the level of government debt and government finances under control, not being a source of, of macroeconomic uh, instability, I think that's going to help a lot. And, uh, and, and you see it in, in, in the numbers and the figures that are, are being published just these days, uh, you know, around the recovery in Mexico, just to give you some idea of the numbers we're talking about, the Mexican economy contracted around eight and a half percent last year because of the pandemic and projections for this year are being increased, uh, you know, as, as, as we go along. And now the latest uh, market consensus is uh, of growth of around six percent or so in 2021, which is pretty, pretty good. And, and it should continue a little bit lower than that, but it should continue into 2022, probably at a level of around three and a half percent per year. So so uh, Mexico, I think, is, is one of the countries around the world that uh, maybe not as quickly as China and some other countries, but uh, but it's going to rebound uh, in the in, in the next few months, in the next few years. And, 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 and also you have to consider that being so close to the U.S. and our economy being so tied up with the economy of the U.S., if the U.S. economy grows as strongly as, as a lot of people expect, at least in 2021, 2022, and, and, and that's going to benefit Mexico. I mean, we're seeing in Mexico a record level of remittances, for example. Just, the numbers just came out, and, and, and we're blowing every record every time they are reported. Uh, the level of foreign direct investment in Mexico of around $29 billion per year has been pretty stable, even through last year's pandemic and most of our exports go to the U.S. 70% of our exports go to the U.S. So to the extent that the U.S. economy grows, I think Mexico is, is, is going to benefit from that. And if you uh, if you consider that monetary policy won't be as uh, tightened as, as early as some people expect, I think the prospects of, of the Mexican economy are good in the next following years. Sure, we all hope so in, in, in all our countries. And finally, uh, why won't you leave us with a thought or a trend that you see that is going to really alter the way um, work or the economy works in the coming years? Maybe something related to uh, artificial intelligence. I saw that you read a book uh, about that recently. Uh, how is that going to impact uh, the way we trade and work? Well, let, let me give you an idea. I, I just just for the record, I, I haven't written a book. <laughs> I wish I had. Uh, I, I write about the subject and I teach about the subject. And, and let me share with you an, a, a recent interview that I just read that was uh, where they interviewed uh, the CTO of Microsoft, who's in charge of, of our, the artificial intelligence developments that are carried out by the company. And he said a couple of things, very interesting things, and, and he made it in, in, in relationship to a new book that he has just published. And, and the first one is that 
we're in the initial stages of digital transformation of uh, new technologies like artificial intelligence where even though it seems to a lot of people that they, they are already behind and it's going to be impossible for them to catch up the message here is that we're just starting so there's plenty of opportunity to transform yourself digitally and if you set your mind to it and, and dedicate the resources to really catch up with people who are more advanced along this route. So that was a good message. And the second message was that contrary to this uh, expectation that a lot of people have, that artificial intelligence is going to take away all of the jobs and we need to establish universal basic income and stuff like that, he gave a very positive view and said, well, listen, uh, a lot of these technologies are really opening up a lot of opportunities for people who are not data scientists, who are not programmers, who are not, you know, on the forefront of these. But these developments really provide them with tools to be more effective in what they do to make better decisions via better predictions. So I think I'm very, very positive about this technology. I think it's going to open up a lot of possibilities that we haven't even thought about. So I would invite the audience to really, you know, know take a look at, at what's going on and get more familiar with the technology and start using it uh, to the extent possible in their day-to-day -day decisions, both personally and in their companies. So I'm very positive about that. I don't think it's going to take away all of our jobs. In, in fact, it's going to open up a lot of new possibilities. And, and I, I think that's the way of the future. My concern, my concern is not that it's going to advance too quickly, but that some regions of the world, some countries in the world, some companies will fall behind and will not take advantage of all the wonderful things that we will be able to do with this technology just because of a knee-jerk reaction to it and, and, and you know, sort of trying to, to bury your head, your, your head in the sand and, and look to the past and try to ignore what's going on. If you embrace it, if you study it, if you, if, if, if you uh, really use it, I think it's going to be very beneficial for companies, for people, and for humanity as a whole. So that would be a message I would like to leave with your audience. Thank you. That was very insightful indeed. And we will put the book in the show notes. So folks, if you want to check it out, go to econamericas.com slash podcast. We'll have all the links there. Also to Rafael's website, his work, what he's written, everything will be there. And Rafael, thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, please stay tuned, folks, for more content like this. Thank you, Daniel.